one day we're gonna get the stay walk stay I'm gonna figure out the sign off. <laughs> I'm gonna let you live this week. <laughs> what, did say, what did I say last podcast? I don't know, something else ignorant, but I, I just I would <laughs> Stay black, said, stay woke, and get out and vote, or something like that. Yeah, he said, stay black, stay woke, get out and vote. And that was good. And then today it was, stay black, stay woke, go out and fight. And it was like, uh, okay, <laughs> it's fine. It's okay, Steve. <laughs> was it underwhelming? Was it underwhelming for you guys? You know, look, I- to Young Black and Political, episode two. How are we feeling about it? We got Chris J. Taylor, Jordan Baker, and Stephanie Pegues, uh, our esteemed panel here to educate you and get you ready and primed for this 2020 election. How are we feeling, guys? Brandon, do people still say what it do, or is that, is that a <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, we do. Uh, I'm, I'm bringing it back. If not, I'm bringing it back. Go ahead and bring it back. That's unfortunate. That's unfortunate? Listen, it's just a common expression at this point, right? I feel like it's one of those things we can bring back, we can bring forward, um, we can bury it if we want. It just, it, it, we know, we get what it means, right? What it do. Yeah, Chris isn't a fan. That's okay. <laughs> well, you know, Chris, Chris has always lacked a little bit of ebonics, you know? <laughs> wow. I wouldn't call him the most ebonic uh, expert out there. Oh, we can unpack that um, anti-black later. <laughs> I can probably educate him, you know. But do you know what cat means, Chris? <laughs> I'm very familiar as as uh, as a one who's actually native to the city living in. <laughs> All right, I think you're tweaking, but I think that I think that Kanye is captain. That's what I think. Yeah, <laughs> he definitely is captain. Oh boy! Well, hey, this panel we always have a good time here. Uh, and hey, Joe Biden's pick is in. He selected Kamala Harris to be his running mate. But why her of all the others? Well, before the pick, we caught up with Sean Anderson with Kibbit Strategies to break down the options, their upsides, and their downsides. Take a listen. All right. We're joined here on Young, Black, and Political by Sean Anderson, a friend of mine. He's a principal at Kivit and national leader for the New Leaders Council. Hey, Sean, how you feeling? I'm good, man. How are you? I'm good, bro. I'm good. Glad, glad we can have you here. A uh, lot of speculation, a lot of talk about uh, vice president. Who should Joe Biden pick? So I uh, thought we'd just run through some options here and kind of give a why they would work and why they wouldn't work uh, for those options. So let's start with Kamala Harris. What are your thoughts on Kamala Harris as far as why she would be a good pick for Joe Biden? Sure. I mean, you know, uh, Kamala Harris is, you know, I think by most accounts, probably the front runner or sort of most likely to be tapped for uh, the VP nod uh, for for Joe Biden. For obvious reasons, she has a lot of strengths. You know, she has she was a national candidate Uh, even before that. She's a senator from California. Both mean that she knows how to raise money. She's a black woman. Uh, Obviously, Biden has committed to picking uh, a woman as a running mate. Uh, I think most people, uh, you know, sort of uh, presume that he needs to pick a woman of color uh, to sort of stay aligned with the, you know, diversity and inclusion commitments that the party's making and stay aligned with his... um, sort of base of support with African-American voters. But she is definitely, by uh, by and large, uh, seen as sort of the, the most likely pick uh, of the sort of the, the names that have been circulated so far. You know, the, the benefit of her is she, uh, again, she hails from California, big state. She knows how to campaign in front of uh, a wide range of uh, communities and constituencies. She knows how to raise money. She's been in a national profile before. She's been a prosecutor, which uh, has its own issues in terms of um, uh, that as a profession, 
but it does, uh, without doubt, yield some very sharp uh, debate skills. And particularly, you know, in light of COVID, uh, you know, we're expecting national media appearances, earned media debates, things in front of televisions uh, to be the vast majority of what campaigning is going to look like between now and November. We're not going to be seeing a lot of rallies and town halls and grip and grin. Uh, so someone who can perform well on TV in a debate, et cetera, uh, I think is going to have some uh, additional weight than usual. So I think Kamala Harris makes a good pick. Um, Joe Biden will need to navigate, uh, both of them will need to navigate um, the uh, discontent with uh, someone who comes from such a law enforcement background. Obviously, Kamala got a lot of flack for um, you know, being a prosecutor, for, for being uh, sort of in the halls of power that uh, have been used to uh, lock up black and brown people uh, for minor crimes, for things that shouldn't even be illegal. Um, she's been a part of that system. Uh, you know, she will argue, as she has before, that uh, she was a part of that system to change the system. But many people see, you know, whether it comes to um, police brutality and criminal justice reform, or even uh, when it came to um, uh, rights for the LGBTQ community, people kind of saw her as a little bit opportunistic, sort of coming out on the right side of the issue after it was kind of already resolved not really leading the charge. So those are some criticisms of her that I think will, you know, they've, they clearly stuck throughout the throughout her campaign. So if she's picked for VP, uh, those issues will come to the surface again. It's just a matter of are times different enough now where um, folks want to defeat Donald Trump so badly that they're willing to overlook some of the less, less than progressive credentials of Kamala Harris and just see her as you know a strong, capable black woman who uh, will be in the White House if we are successful this November. It's very interesting you you mentioned. I thought this is really good. Like the the consideration, a big consideration is going to be like navigating this COVID world, right? And how are they going to perform uh, virtually and digitally and and how they're going to connect to audiences. So I thought that was a that was a good point you made there. I want to talk about the other person Joe Biden faced in the primaries um, who could be a VP option for him, Elizabeth Warren. Uh, she stood there standing uh, at number three. She was the uh, last person to kind of drop before Bernie did. Um, what would be some positives and some drawbacks of choosing her for VP? Well, I think the positives speak for themselves. I mean, she was, uh, you know, short of Bernie Sanders, considered the progressive candidate uh, in the race, uh, in terms of um, her positions on the issue and her overall branding. Um, she was uh, sort of the last to drop out um, bef uh, besides um, Bernie Sanders uh, once it became uh, down to those two. Um, the issues are also a matter of identity. Um, you know, people will question, should we really have two old white folks at the top of the ticket? If, you know, we're gonna be the party of racial justice uh, and a good foil to uh, the outright white supremacy that we're seeing from the White House today, is the answer to that really going to be two old white folks in their 70s approaching 80, 80s or uh, 80 years of age? So Joe Biden is seen as a centrist. There is not a lot of enthusiasm for him among the left flank of the party. Um, so, you know, if he can get someone who is, you know, a bit more progressive has uh, that has those progressive chops. That might go a long way to uh, what you know most folks expect to be a turnout game. Even in light of COVID, I think you know at this point there aren't that many people left who are going to be persuaded, you know, one way or the other. You, you know, you might have ten percent of the electorate, but at the end of the day, it's going to be about who can get their voters out and energized to vote, especially if they're going to have to do it. Um, in a position where they're, you know, putting their health at risk. I mean, there's, you know, if we're going to have long lines again, as we've seen in many states that have tried to, you know, systemically and systematically restrict access to polling. We saw that at uh, the last presidential election. We saw that during the midterms. We saw that in special elections so far this year uh, or local elections. So, yeah, 
if, if Joe Biden can find someone, and maybe it is Elizabeth Warren who could really energize the base, that might go a long way. It's just a matter of will the party and frankly, will the country accept being led by two white, uh, two white people uh, in this time so where there are literally millions of people protesting for racial justice. Yeah, yeah. The, that's got to be a big consideration and a tough one for Joe Biden because as part of the VP pick too, you're not just picking it for this moment. You're picking it for four years, you know? That's someone you're going to be working with hand in hand. And Warren and Biden have had uh, their, uh, what's the word? Their battles in the past. Uh, but they also seem to be in agreement on a lot of things too. So uh, I wonder how that would turn out. I, th- I think it's also interesting, those two people, Kamala Harris and Elizabeth Warren, have both been primaried. They've both been through a process of vetting and media scrutiny. Um, and so I wonder, does that hurt them? Does that help them? If they were to be the VP, what do you think? That that usually helps someone. So, you know, campaigns, as you can maybe imagine, go through a rather extensive vetting process on the back end, behind the scenes, when they're looking at picking a running mate. So if someone has already sort of been exposed to media, they've had reporters and opposing candidates and staff, et cetera, even within the same party, sort of dick, you know, for any sort of dirt on them. And, you know, so far, you know, they were running in the primary for pretty much a year. And so if a year went by and a candidate is still seen as viable and, you know, not to not having major scandals or skeletons in the closet, so to speak, then, yeah, you know, it is more likely that the campaign will determine that that is a safer pick as opposed to a relatively or comparatively obscure, you know, senator or governor or congressperson uh, who hasn't had that level of vetting and who hasn't gone through the rigors of a national campaign. You know, that is actually a part that is usually underestimated when it comes to picking a VP. Um, You have to have a lot of stamina to be a national candidate. And some, you know, of these congressmen and senators and governors just aren't used to that, aren't used to crisscrossing the country, visiting five states in five hours. Um, and that's, you know, that that is a big, that's a big factor. It's not about, you know, the polling and the public image per se. It's about can they actually like fit in and make it through the campaign as a person, as, a, as someone who, you know, still needs sleep and still has, you know, family to tend to and everything. Um, so, you know, someone who's gone through a national campaign will definitely have that easier than someone who hasn't. So I think it would be a, a, a helpful sign, you know, for Warren and for Kamala Harris, et cetera. Makes sense. All right. Well, hey, there's also some some names on the list yet. Like they don't have that big national media exposure. Uh, one name that's been voted a lot is uh, Val Demings. I Listen, I, I, I think Val is sharp. She, uh, has proven herself in the impeachment hearings and um, in these uh, different congressional hearings and stuff. She's really sharp at her ability to prosecute a case, right? Even though she's not a lawyer, she comes off as one. Uh, What are your thoughts on how Val Demings would look for Joe Biden as VP? I think Demings was definitely one of those sort of dark horse candidates for VP. Um, You know, in my opinion, if I'm just sort of doing back of the envelope uh, math here, I think you know, sort of her viability was uh, pretty much extinguished uh, when the uh, protests against police brutality and protests to defund police period uh, in the aftermath of, uh, of George Floyd's murder. Um, I think that has basically extinguished her candidacy because, you know, again, she hasn't had the national exposure. So, you know, not a lot of people realize that she has had some issues when it comes to uh, her own history with, with uh, policing and, mm. you know, um, perhaps erring too much on the side of giving officers the benefit of the doubt uh, when it comes to their own misconduct. So I think, you know, if that were to come out and that would be a big issue in, in September or October, you don't want that. You don't want to sort of ruin um, any sense of momentum or energy that's coming from the party or from uh, even independents who are inclined to vote for you. And you certainly don't want the energy of the broader movement uh, to uh, uh, defund and reimagine public policing. 
and public safety, you don't want that movement to turn against you in the campaign. So, mm-hmm. you know, I think Deming's sort of uh, is a long shot right now, but, you know, she's from a state that is a key battleground state. Um, and, you know, maybe there's a very surgical strategic play uh, when it comes to turnout in that state. So um, we'll see. Yeah, the swing state thing's interesting. Florida, you know, many would wonder if that would give an advantage. Is that something to consider when you're choosing a VP, the, the regional advantage and the electoral map? Absolutely. Um, you know, and it's, it's sort of twofold. It's one, you sort of want to balance out the top of the ticket. You know, if you have uh, a, a nominee who is from, you know, uh, the, the Northeast or the Midwest, you might want a running mate who's from the South or from the West Coast just to sort of balance out, you know, things culturally and politically. Uh, it's it's certainly the case when it comes to electoral math. Uh, you know, um, you know, it, it, there's not a lot of strategic value in picking a running mate from the same state because it doesn't really get you a leg up in yeah. uh, hitting that magic number of 270. Um, and so, you know, coming from a, a, a large state with a lot of electoral votes, such as Florida or California, um, definitely, you know, has a lot more weight to it coming from you know massachusetts uh, or even illinois which is a pretty safe uh, safe blue state uh, when it comes to the presidential election so yeah. um yeah you know that that is sort of the the one major thing that she has going for her when you, we talk about you know different regions obviously joe biden east coast delaware pennsylvania area uh they love him over there um stacy abrams georgia uh yeah. she rose to fame by running for governor losing an election there there was election um, you know, vote election fraud and things like that that really impacted uh, the results. But uh, she's still been a big name. What are your thoughts with Stacey Abrams if she were to be the pick? Does she still have a shot here? Um, I think so. You know, what's unusual about Stacey and her sort of jockeying for this is normally, you know, campaigns prefer to, uh, you know, work with someone and consider someone who has, you know, stayed behind the scenes, not really chased after the uh, after the nomination for VP, uh, whereas Stacey Abrams has been upfront and candid from the get-go that she would be interested in the role, uh, that she does want to run for president. So it is very unintuitive um, or at least untraditional when it comes to her positioning. But I don't know if that has really hurt her a lot because no one can deny the um, influence that she holds, not just within Georgia, but frankly, nationwide. I mean, Democrats, uh, progressive, moderate, otherwise love Stacey Abrams across the country. She can go to any state, any city and get a large crowd at the snap of a finger. Um, So, you know, and Georgia is very much in play. Um, You know, surprisingly, looking at the polls, it actually suggests that Texas is a bit more within reach than Georgia, but Georgia has been on the party's radar for three or four cycles now um, since Obama first ran um, at the very least, if not before that. Mm. Um, and so, you know, if she is able to replicate the same energy when she ran for governor um, and, you know, with a little bit more of uh, national support when it comes to resources and not just money, I mean, even legally, you know, making sure that votes are counted, that polls are open, that people aren't purged from the voter registration rolls. Um, you know, we, if she's a nominee for VP, we might be able to pick off Georgia. And I think she would make a phenomenal vice president. The argument against her is, do you want someone in the White House second in line with a rather elder president who has never had an executive elected role before? Um, you know, and that's something to consider to your earlier point. You know, it's not just about winning the campaign. It's about doing the job and having the constitutional responsibility for succession. Um, you know, so if she is picked for VP, that is going to be the main argument that people need to make around her, that she would be ready to not only be Joe Biden's VP, but to step in, um, God forbid, uh, that becomes required. Yeah, you know, and she's also coincidentally one of the youngest people on Biden's uh, short list of potential VPs. And uh, I, I, I feel like when you have a 70 uh, what is he, 77? How old is Joe Biden? 76? Something like that. When you have someone that old um, running for president, age has to play a factor for sure in the VP decision, right? Absolutely. So that's that's the knock against, not the knock, but you know, that's the con when it comes to um, Elizabeth Warren or even Bernie Sanders, if you know, if he's still under consideration. 
Um, you know, we have, you know, this has been a sort of a, a chronic, um, I'll say, oversight with the Democratic Party in, in so far as we tend to continually rely on the same generation of leaders um, and to just look across the national party um, in Congress, uh, you know, staff in the White House, et cetera, you know, they're, they're, they're pretty old. Um, and, uh, you know, we just need to do a better job of um, sort of letting go and ushering in a new generation of leadership, you know, every five or 10 years so that we have fresh faces who are equipped to do the work so that, you know, we're not, you know, we, should, we really should not be having people of such elder age um, holding power for 20, 30 years, you know, whether it be in Congress or running state parties, et cetera. Um, so we got we to do a better job with that. And, and Stacey Abrams uh, will definitely be a move in the right direction. And like I said, she would definitely energize uh, the campaign, even even during COVID. Yeah. Uh, Susan Rice uh, served under Obama uh, as a national security advisor. Um, what are your thoughts on her? her? I've seen her name pop up a lot for VP consideration. Yeah, Susan Rice is an interesting one. And, and that is, you know, I feel like when we're talking about Susan Rice, we're definitely talking about the factor of picking a VP when it comes to the personal relationship between the, uh, between the person running for president and uh, their running mate. And as you can imagine, both working in the Obama White House, uh, Joe Biden being in the foreign policy circle for decades, Joe Biden and Susan Rice know each other very well. Um, they're very comfortable with each other. They have a very positive personal rapport. Um, and that matters, you know, because at the end of the day, Barack Obama picked Joe Biden because, you know, he got along with them. Joe Biden may pick Susan Rice because he gets along with her um, and will sort of um, just double down on sort of resuming, at least in foreign policy, resuming the sort of um, Obama-esque or Obama trajectory of things that Joe Biden himself largely informed. Uh, so I would not at all be surprised by a Susan Rice pick. Uh, it does beg the question, though, does the country know her? Does the country know enough about her? Can the country resonate with her? Especially given that, you know, she's not going to have a lot of direct contact with voters. Again, this is going to be a campaign through TV and phone screens. Mm. And do voters really know enough about, can they really relate to her and, and be introduced to her between now and what, 97, 96 days from now, enough to vote for, vote for her and Joe Biden. So that's going to be the open question. And you know what? I, I also fear too, with, with Susan Rice, um, there was that, you know, big uh, spectacle made of the Benghazi incident um, mm -hmm. and Susan Rice's involvement with that. Uh, the Fox News crowd and a lot of the uh, Trump base, I feel like would leap on that immediately and she wouldn't have a lot of in-person uh, chances to be able to make the case for herself with that. Precisely. And, you know, um, I mean, that's, that's the downside. When you have, uh, when, when your job is actual policy um, and not just sort of being the visionary or the face of policy, you're actually doing the work uh, as she was when she was a national security advisor and, and uh, with the UN, um, you can get tagged with some issues. Um, and those issues will come back when, if and when you do seek elected office. Um, and it's hard to explain those because, you know, back then you were in one mindset that you were a career professional uh, doing the job regardless of, you know, it was not her job to really consider public opinion. Um, and so she may be on sort of, she may have sort of um, executed some things that, you know, might be an issue uh, with some swing voters. You know, I don't think any, I don't think anyone who already knows they're going to vote for Joe Biden is going to have to take issue with the Benghazi. I think folks consider that largely um, uh, adjudicated and, and done with. Uh, but, you know, for some of those swing voters, you know, in Michigan and Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, um, North Carolina, Virginia, uh, it might be an issue. Hmm. Very interesting. Finally, uh, this one's kind of a wild card, but I've seen the name rise and heard the name in a lot of circles close to Joe Biden. Uh, New Mexico Governor uh, Michelle Lujan Gresham. Uh, people have been praising her for her response to COVID-19 in her state um, and see her as a as a rising star 
uh, within the party. Um, but governors, especially acting governors, do they really make good VP options? What do you think about uh, Lujan Gresham here? Yeah, you know, they, they can. Um, it's a little bit difficult because they have, they have a job uh, and, and, it's, and it's a lot to really consider. Do you resign? Do you try to do a little bit of both? Um, and every state has different laws around that. Um, but, um, you know, she definitely is one of the sort of um, uh, underrated candidates when it comes to VP. Um, I think, you know, when you're a governor and, you, and, and you're in a time of crisis, which we are right now, we have been since March and we will continue to be until we have a vaccine. Uh, and, you're, you know, your state, your constituents think you're doing well. That's a really big plus when it comes to, you know, if I'm on the Biden campaign and I'm helping vetting candidates, that's a big plus uh, because you have proven that A, you can do an executive job, B, uh, you know, constituents of, uh, of varying uh, communities and identities uh, like your job, your job performance um, and C, you know, she's um, Latina. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, New Mexico is not necessarily really a swing state anymore. It's usually uh, pretty reliably blue. But, you know, if we want to do what we can to increase the enthusiasm among Latinx voters, you know, that's, that's you know, she's definitely someone to consider. The only thing that I might be concerned about her is um, when it comes to foreign policy, actually, I think she has, she's known to be uh rather strongly pro-Israel. Mm. And I just don't know if the Biden campaign wants to do anything that will immediately excite opposition within the Democratic Party. I can easily see um, progressive folks who are in the foreign policy space who care about the what's happening uh, and the encroachment of Israeli sediments into uh, Palestine taking issue with her right away. And I don't know if you want to stir up controversy right now among your, among your own base. So that, that might be an issue when it comes to her potential candidacy. I know we're running out of time with you, but I want to ask real quick, we, we're looking at all women candidates here, and Joe Biden is committed to a woman VP. Uh, what does a woman VP bring to the table? Does it at all help get some of those 43% uh, of white women who voted for Trump um, on Biden's side? Um, it may, it, it, and I would hope that it, that it would, mm -hmm. uh, but I think the, you know, honestly, I think the biggest benefit of, of picking a woman candidate, uh, a woman running running mate is, is the virtue of it, the moral virtue of it, and that we have not had um, a woman in national constitutional office uh, besides uh, Nancy Pelosi, um, and we need to change that. Um, and we need to show the country, really frankly, show the world uh, that, um, you know, we are taking strides, at least attempting to, of addressing the marginalization of women in our political system uh, that has basically gone since we were founded as a country. And so um, I think it's, I think it shows women in America, I think it shows women around the world and frankly the entire world um, that we're trying to do better um, as a country. So I think that is first and foremost the number one advantage of picking a woman run, running mate. And then sort of comes the uh, sort of the political, um, the political uh, benefits of it, hmm. electorally speaking. Yeah. Sean Anderson, hey man, if you ever run for office, uh, give me a heads up if you need a VP. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, appreciate, I appreciate the time and um, happy to join, uh, happy to talk to you about any other issues as, as things go forward, but it's going to be, you know, it's going to be exciting. Um, I think, you know, this is the most important election of this country's entire history. Um, we are in the middle of a, of a global pandemic that um, has killed far too many, I mean, hundreds of thousands that we'll probably see uh, people in America and around the world. Um, and we, you know, we, we've got, we have to win this election. Um, and at the end of the day, no matter who is picked as VP, as long as they are committed to the core values of inclusion and equity and justice and have a plan to actually make it reality, uh, then I think, you know, all of us should be game to make sure that we do what we can to get Joe Biden um, and his running mate into office.
That's right, man. All right, Sean, thank you so much. And we're definitely going to have you back. There's no doubt about that. Great. All right. Take care, brother. Hey, see ya. Well, let's get some reaction to the, uh, the selection of Kamala Harris. Uh, the K-high was strong. How did y'all feel when the pick was dropped? Well, I will say as a woman of Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated, a first-generation American woman with immigrant parents, it was astonishing. There were real tears. There was a real flood of emotion. And it was everything I don't know if I let myself believe I could be growing up, realize. You know, as a girl growing up in a household with parents with funny accents and navigating between various cultures in America and so many other things, it's, you know, you don't all oftentimes let yourself believe that you can rise to the highest of heights of your career and this being the White House and, and seeing that happen in my lifetime, as I'm still relatively young, was a moment I will never forget. And so that to me, like, I, my prayer is just when my daughters grow up and there's an African-American woman president, they'll be like, oh, okay, big whoop. Hmm. That's real. Jordan, what about you? What was your reaction? Um, it's definitely historic and iconic. I believe uh, Shirley Chisholm is somewhere smiling. Um, Oh, yeah. pick. That's definitely overdue. Black women have done so much for the Democratic Party that they deserve this pick, and it's definitely about time. Um, I think it's a great pick also in the midst of uh, the crisis. With the pandemic, you know, we have to figure out new ways to campaign virtually, and picking somebody who's roughly a household name across America definitely helps you out. She's also like I said, a smart pick, um, I think coming from California, uh, she could help Biden um, get votes from the Latino community, which is something that I think he, uh, like one thing that he uh, needs. Um, and I believe Kamala can help him with that. Um, she's also uh, liberal, but not radical. So a lot of the Trump campaign's attacks about her being too left or the radical left don't really, you know, like uh, pertain to her. So. You know, she's great in that regards. And I think most importantly, uh, her pick means more uh, Maya Rudolph on SNL. So, <laughs> yeah, we get Maya Rudolph back. <laughs> right, so. If we get SNL like the way we want. I mean, I'd, I'd love to get <laughs> SNL back to the, the skits like we're traditionally used to, right? But uh, mm -hmm. Maybe they can do a socially distanced virtual way of doing it. I'm sure they'll find a way. <laughs> Hopefully. But yeah, like, you know, uh, I like the pick. I'm I'm good with it. Uh, Chris, look, Democratic voters like the pick. Forty-eight million dollars in forty-eight hours raised after that announcement. The Big base money. is fired up about uh, Kamala Harris as, as the next vice president of the United States. They're fired up about Joe Biden building back better. Um, and so I, I think right now where we are is eighty days away from election day with a base that's fired up with. Um, frankly, the American people, uh, folks of goodwill who are saying we need to set this country on a new course and they're ready to do it. And the energy is showing up in dollars. It's showing up in, in folks uh, organized to virtually campaign uh, this cycle. So I'm excited about the selection. Uh, Y'all all know I'm a Kamala stand. I'm excited about the about the selection and I'm looking forward to Vice President Harris and, and President Biden. All I know is the AKAs and the Howard grads are about to be extra at the polls. Right, let me tell you, my 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 inbox right now, everyone that is a Howard grad lets you know in the first three seconds. They sure do. They tell you and right is, And if you find a Howard AKA, I just want you to know, that's going to be the first thing they say to you. Good morning. You know, they come in the My soror. <laughs> well, on behalf of the women of Alpha Kappa Alpha, if anybody on Team uh, Biden-Harris is listening, we would love more pink and green merchandise on the Biden store. Um, you know, the red, white, and blue is great, the traditional, but um, the Sawraws would just like some, some pink and green merchandise on the actual Joe Biden store. So just putting that out there. And, and Stephanie, we should talk about it for, for just a second. It's, something, it's a conversation to have later, but I think... <laughs> 
<laughs> think oh, I'm, I'm being really serious. <laughs> there are 2.6 million Black Greek uh, organization members yeah. in the United States. And these are folks who have at the very core of their organizations the civic duty to vote. Alpha, the first Black fraternity in the United States, created the Voters People as a Hopeless People program in the 1930s, which is about protecting the vote for Black people and for, the, for Black communities. And so these members who are involved in parent-teacher councils and city councils and school boards and obviously running for federal office in Congress, think about Luke, Lucy McBath in Georgia and, and Pat Timmons Goodson in North Carolina, these are people who are on the ballot this year and whose members and organizations are going to be making sure they get out the vote up and down the ticket and right and, and this year on the highest ticket um, in the land. So that's a lot of power, organizing power and dollars is going to be brought to bear. Um, and so I'm just excited about what that means for engagement uh, in the Black community and really being able to turn on the tool that is some of the oldest civic organizations in the United States. Yeah. And Chris, to that point, and I know we're, we're veering a little left, but you and I being both part of Divine Nine fraternities and sororities, I attribute my ability to coalition build to Alpha Cap Alpha Sorority Incorporated. Mm -hmm. Being the social and civil rights organizations in which they are for generations, I truly believe that the world will get to see what Divine Nine organizations and HBCUs are really about. Because people love the strolling, they love the skiwees and the pinky and, you know, the fashions. But I think that this will put a, look at Brandon over there hitting the pat pat. <laughs> I think that, that video of those white boys doing it, you know, like this got me inspired. Yes, everyone wants to be a Sauron now, but no, seriously, I think this will put on display for the world what it truly means to be a part of these organizations. And that as much fun as we have with the parties and the, the community service that at the core of us, is civic engagement, is coalition building. And this is our time to shine. Like this is when I want every, so if you have not paid dues in 10 years, Sara, that's all right. It is time for you to knock some doors, write some letters, call your line sisters, bring one of them to the polls with you, because this is our moment to make our founders really, really proud. Mm. That's right. I get emotional just thinking about that, Stephanie. That's, that's you're right. <laughs> Right. I can already hear the ski wheeze. My ears already hurt. Listen, oh, I already have my fashion. I'm ready for the step show at inauguration. And I am practicing. Y'all know I can't clap on beat, but I'm getting ready. Y'all saw my step show at the undergrad. I'm getting ready. We're going to have a step show at inauguration. And I am, I am Listen, ready I'm, for it. I think I'm all for a, a Greek step show out there on the White House lawn. Let's do it. So, you know, demand for a Black woman VP, it surged ahead of his big VP announcement, and the group Black Women United led that charge. So uh, here's a quick chat with Tara Cooper-Wright about that movement. I'm happy you're willing to do this. Um, I think it's important yeah. to have this on here for sure. Um, so Kamala Harris is our vice presidential candidate for Joe Biden's ticket. Uh, first of all, for Black Women United, what was the reaction to that? I'm sure it was pure joy. Yeah, well, we were very actively, you know, working and collaborating with each other, with the media, um, to just make sure that, candidly, the country just knew and was well aware of all that Black women had to offer um, in this race. And, you know, from just, you know, women who have had incredible experiences, who we know that, you know, Black women are the most loyal voting body to to the Democratic Party and um, are also candidly just the fixers of American democracy. And so, yeah. <laughs> you know, having um, Kamala, um, you know, kind of selected as um, the vice president's uh, Biden's, you know, nominee really shows the country what we all know, that she is incredibly brilliant, incredibly tough incredibly qualified and candidly on day one ready to lead and i think we saw that throughout her um the campaign cycle for her um 
running for president and I think as a vice president will complement, challenge, and really strengthen, um, you know, Joe Biden and ultimately, you know, doing that for the country. And I will say I says a lot about Vice President Biden that he chose and really selected a candidate who will challenge him, who will hold him accountable, who will bring new and diverse and very different perspectives to the office. Both, you know, she brings her Indian heritage. She brings her Jamaican heritage. She brings Black women from Oakland heritage and, you know, Howard HBCU graduate. And I think all of that perspective will just is reflects America and will really strengthen the presidency. Yeah, it's definitely energized people for sure, especially Howard grads and AKAs. They they ready. <laughs> you we we stay ready. They're not ready for inauguration. There's going to be a lot of screeching, breaking <laughs> glasses in the White House. But we have to get there, honestly. And yeah. I think what people need to just know and really be thinking about is the deal isn't done yet. And we've seen in the last you know two weeks how desperate this president has been to really dismantle, um, you know, the system, uh, the, the postal service system in an effort to prevent people from exercising their right to vote and just how willing he is to interfere with the democracy that this country was built on. And just as much as we have, you know, kind of fought and marched for in history for, you know, a lot of important rights. There is no right that is um, more critical right now than voting, um, you know, and so we are, we got a lot to do in, you know, these last be something days to make sure that everyone has not only the right to vote, but doesn't have the fear of will my vote be counted as I'm sure, you know, you know, from just having conversations, people are already cynical about government. And they're cynical about just this process. And I think us as young Democrats who really believe in, you know, fairness and justice need to make sure that we are doing everything we can to communicate to people. Do not give up, like never give up, never get in. Like we have the right to vote and will not rest until everyone's vote um, is counted. Yeah. So it sounds like Black Women United, you know, the job isn't done in terms of just, you know, having a Black woman VP selected, there's still work to do, you know, during the campaign and beyond. Our work is never done. Let's be honest about that. And I think we've seen that time and time again. But, you know, these next 80-something days, it's going to be really, really important that we all mobilize to get people's votes counted. And then, you know, I believe in the power of positive thinking. And so when the, you know, Biden and Harris do win, the real work is going to begin to not only have a successful transition um, of administrations, but then to really start to rebuild our country and reinvest in our communities. We've seen chronic disinvestment of neighborhoods like the neighborhoods that we're very familiar with on the South and West side that, you know, are not getting the federal funding and support that they need and deserve. Schools aren't getting the funding that they need and deserve. And we have, we're just going to have a lot of work to do to really help restore, um, you know, our, our, our country and our communities. And I'm so confident, you know, having a Black woman um, in, in the White House and her voice reflecting um, the voice of our communities is going to be so critical. As well as, again, I can't say enough about Vice President Biden, you know, as someone who um, not only supported President Obama in the time of need, but really has had a life and career dedicated um, you know, to just fighting for the underdogs and and being one to who's not a, scared to ruffle feathers and, um, you know, trying to get in the ring. And like, we need someone who's going to fight to restore this country. It's part of that work, too, when we talk about, you know, beyond just this moment, trying to get more Black women to run for elected office and see that the power in themselves that, you know, this is a job they can do. Absolutely. I think that it's so important. And, I, and I'm hopeful that in November, we will be victorious with a number of, um, you know, Black women who are unlikely candidates on the ballot. And I think we're seeing across the country, candidly, that no longer are Black women going to be in the shadows and candidly going to be the help in the background, making sure that everyone else's, you know, kind of dreams and visions are realized. We are brilliant. We are are creative, we are dogged, we are qualified 
to help lead our country and our communities. And I think, you know, when you think about the historic significance of Kamala Harris being nominated for this position, um, we see it being recognized. We see Black women's brilliance being recognized and validated and supported. And it's important for other women, it's important for other men, it's important for little girls to recognize themselves as being capable and qualified to hold such an office as, you know, vice president, president, congressman, mayor. Um, and we're seeing that more than ever. I love at the beginning of, um, sadly, you know, the pandemic, how we saw uh, four Black women mayors, Mayor Lightfoot from Chicago, Mayor Browser from D.C., um, Mayor Breed from San Francisco, and Mayor Bottoms from Atlanta of like this squad of women who were in charge of major metropolitan cities that give so much to our economy and that were so in need during this time of leadership because we were not getting that from the president and on the federal level. And so I think we'll see more of that. And um, the more that it is celebrated in um, respected and invested in because it takes money to run. It takes money to run cities. Um, so the more that we all are investing in that, um, I think the better that we as a country will be. Yeah, hundred percent. You know, I, I, it's about time. Um, you know, I, I know from experience, every black woman boss I've had, any black woman leader that I've had, uh, has been the best leader just the way it is. Uh, Black women are ready to lead and they're exceptional at it. So, you know, I think a lot of people are feeling like, yo, come on now, let's do this thing. You know, it's it's long overdue. Yeah. And, um, you know, I have throughout my life just been so fortunate to be nurtured and supported by so many Black women. But and I have admired as well and, you know, kind of read and learned about so many Black women, especially in politics. And there's a group of women called the Color Girls. Um, and they are, um, you know, were early democratic strategists and leaders who recently wrote a book. And one of the things that Minyan Moore, one of them uh, often says that when Black women enter rooms, they see everyone. They bring their perspective as a mother, as a daughter, as a, oh. you know, leader, as, um, you know, just a nurturer and supporter. And again, really back to a leader. Black women are the head of households, you know, a lot of them. You know, we, a lot of us were made, raised by our matriarchs. Our grandmothers and great-grandmothers are some of the most formative people in our country, um, in our community. And so when we walk in a room, we have a unique perspective to not only, um, you know, kind of candidly see people who may represent our backgrounds, but we really see everyone. And that is the kind of empathetic servant leadership that is needed. That when we talk about, you know, the buzzwords, buzzwords of diversity and inclusion, real inclusion means having empathy for people who you may never understand or never have the same experiences or perspectives, but you have, um, you know, just the willingness to want to learn and be challenged by them. And I think that's just such a unique perspective that candidly only Black women have. Yeah. I think another thing Black women are great at is supporting each other. I think we've seen that with this VP announcement, um, this, this pride, even people who don't agree with Kamala Harris politically, um, or who may have their own policy disagreements with her, uh, they're still happy for her. And when we see these racist attacks um, and you know the birther claims all of a sudden, all this this wild stuff coming out there, black women are standing up and being like, "No, nah, we ain't going for that." How about men though? Like, how can men support this work and support black women and 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 their call to leadership? Not just Kamala Harris, but you know our black mayors and, and the future, the little girls out there who'd like to be in those positions too. No, absolutely. I, you know, men, black men, white men, Indian men, all men have such, I think, a role to play right now in the fight for equality and supporting women. I think we were also hardened to see that as it came to the last few days of the VP selection, there was a group of African-American um, executives and leaders and entertainment and business 
um, you know, kind of co-signed and co-authored by um, Puff Daddy and uh, Charlemagne the God, uh, you know, who really advocated for selecting a Black woman, um, you know, as a candidate for the exact reasons, you know, that we discussed as far as being true leaders and nurturers um, and honestly fighters, people who will, you know, to, uh, you know, almost to the death, really work to make the community better. And I think that we need to see more of that. Women cannot do this alone. And it's, you know, we need everyone's support. We need, we also just need to be treated fairly. I was reading a study recently that said, you know, Black women particularly are more likely to be criticized or their mistakes called out at work as opposed to not only you know, white women, but white men and black men. And I think what we're asking for, and I think what this pick represents is for a person like Kamala Harris to be selected based off of her qualifications to lead for nothing else. This isn't about her being too ambitious because anything otherwise is an insult to God. This isn't about her being too, you know, stubborn or too, um, you know, too much of a fighter. Those are all, if you were to close your eyes and give those compliments to a men, he would be at the top of the list to be selected. So I think what part of what we need to kind of all shift our perspective to think about is how in the media, how in our public conversations at the dinner table, how we are really judging um, you know, Black women right now. And I think really leveling the playing field so that we can be judged solely on our qualifications, um, you know, and what we bring to the table is a start and, and Black men have to help us do that. And mm-hmm. Black men have to also be excited about this, right? Like yeah. when when a Black woman wins, they win too. This is something that, again, will really uplift our entire community. And so we have to be really, really deliberate about celebrating Kamala's win as if it's our win too, because it really is a win, not only for us selfishly and individually, but for our communities and the people who we know have been so left behind by this administration and really in this society for years. This is a win for them because we have someone who we know is going to be in their corner. And that's just, we haven't had that in a while. And so that's, that's why I'm excited. That's huge. Yeah. Representation matters. I'm excited because there's a potential for us getting a Greek step show during the inauguration. That's that's what you know I want. Who needs the yard when you got the Rose Garden? I Come mean, on. they are just not ready. And I'm really inspired by the Divine Nine. You know, I'm an AKA, right. but the Deltas put out a statement, you know. I think the Alphas are, are obviously coming with it for his family. And we just have everyone in the Divine Nine, everyone in HBCs. I, I did not. I feel like I have the honor to go to a historical black college, but I claim them now. I mean, I think it is so beautiful to see what can be produced at an institution that is all about celebrating and nurturing young black leaders and really, you know, like our ancestors are rejoicing, just thinking about, you know, I'm thinking about Shirley Chisholm, who was laughed when she tried to run for president and, you know, kind of so many other people who just despite incredible, incredible odds had the strength and the fortitude to still keep pushing. And I think Kamala Harris in just all of her beautiful and complicated, you know, background and uh, just represents the strength and the resilience and the tenacity, you know, of our people. So I'm inauguration day already. And whether it has to be digital or not, there, like I say, some glasses will be broken in the White House after all the Star Wars ski leave. That's right. That's right. Let's get in formation. I'm ready. Exactly. <laughs> Tara Cooper Wright, thank you so much for uh, taking some time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Such an honor to be here. And now we are on to the Democratic National Convention. It's going to be different this year because of the pandemic. It's going to be virtual. We're used to seeing lots of raucous crowds and seeing everybody energized and galvanized in one room. Uh, But yes, virtual, but lots of big speakers. Um, So really, the the big thing we want to discuss here is what do these conventions actually do? They happen every time we have a presidential election. What is 
the purpose of that? Um, I do believe that the pomp and circumstance and balloon drops and all of that helps galvanize and energize the base. It's three days of speeches and enter four days, I'm sorry, four days of speeches and entertainment and really giving Democrats the push for the last 80 something days, right? Um, now we're in 80 something days. I know that usually the convention is in July, but I really do believe that the DNC helps get Democrats fired up and ready to go. Whether you're actually at the arena or you're at home, it's the last little bit of oomph you need to knock on those doors, to phone bank. And I, I believe, in my personal opinion, really just sets the tone until November. I think yeah. the voters looking for, uh, well, another thing, you know, officially the DNC is where we're going to officially nominate the president and vice president of the party, right? So we'll make that official. Um, the party will adopt a, a party platform, which gives us in broad strokes, um, you know, an, an idea of where Democrats stand on critical issues, c comes to college affordability, comes to health care. Um, it's also an opportunity for the party, as Stephanie said, to lay out its message and make its case to voters. Um, and I think for folks who are thinking about where they want to be, thinking about the candidates they want to support and reasons to be excited, the convention is something really important to tune into because you're going to hear Democrats make the case for why they should be uh, voted into office up and down the ballot from, from Congress to the Senate to, to the White House um, and be elected uh, in November. Also, it's a unifying moment. The Democratic Party, we say it all the time and it's cliche, the Democratic Party is a big tent. And you're going to see voices from all over the party come together uh, and make a case for why Democrats yeah, should be elected in the room. Here's that big tent line. <laughs> Democratic Party is a big tent. And, and the Republican Party is a big tent, too. You've got, you got QAnon. Um, you've got the Proud Boys. <laughs> yeah, it's a big tent. Yeah, they've got a, they've got a tent. they got a tent of, of sorts. More of a, it's not really assembled, right? It's not really much of a tent shape. It's like still in the box. They got the sticks planted, you know, more of a. Yeah. One of the other big things about the DNC is um, typically with conventions, it's a big time to fundraise. And mm -hmm. this year without, you know, the in-person interaction that everybody's used to, um, there are going to be new creative ways that uh, these campaigns are going to present. Um, their campaigns to fundraise. Um, so that's something to, to pay attention to this year. Um, uh, with well, yeah, that's huge because virtual, you know, there's going to be less in-person events, mm -hmm. less chances to really have that personal touch or, you know, go to the barnyards and make your, your speeches in battleground states like Ohio and Wisconsin. Like, you know, a lot's going to be dependent on communicating a message virtually and raising money that way. And really that's where, where we're going to see a lot of keynote speakers and we're seeing a lot of keynote speakers this week. Um, and it's kind of this chance, we see this every year too, where the Democratic Party kind of puts on like who the future of the party is supposed to be, right? Like we always talk about Barack Obama. He spoke at the, what was it, 2000, uh, was it 2004 DNC? And that was kind of like his introduction to the national stage. And he ran for president in 2008. And we kind of see the same thing happen over time. Stacey Abrams has a speaking slot and other, uh, you know, up and upcoming and rising uh, Democratic stars. And uh, the Republican Party is sure to when it, try to do the same thing with the people that are rising stars of their party as well. Just It's, it's a chance to kind of pitch for the future, too, right? <laughs> Chris is laughing. He's like, what rising star? Agreed. No. I mean, if you think about it, right, Obama in 04, Deval Patrick, Julian Castro, Elizabeth Warren, like if you think of all the people who have had keynote spots, they in some way, shape or form have either, they have all actually ran for president or they have had a really pivotal role in shaping the message and the narrative of what the Democratic Party is. Definitely. And I love what they are doing this year in having the 16 rising stars of the Democratic Party all speak on Tuesday night with the theme that leadership matters. 
And if you look at who they have speaking, they have Stacey Abrams, they have um, Nikki Freed from Florida, who is the only Democratic person or Democratic candidate to win statewide um, in several years. Um, they have, you know, the Navajo Nation president speaking. They have Randall Woodfin from Alabama. You know, they have just so many diverse, not only in age, but in, you know, geographic and um, ethnic backgrounds. And I think that, Chris, when you're talking about the Big Ten, it, like you said, if you could show me the same on the Republican side of who their rising stars are, if you show me that diversity in age and in ethnicity and in geography, and in socioeconomic background, then, yep. you know. And, and, in perspectives, and in perspective, Stephanie, and I think that's why we've seen, we've seen energy. And I think, you know, I, we, we're having these conversations in this format uh, really because we want to talk to um, our friends, frankly, about the importance of voting in 2020 and, and bring folks into the fold. Um, but what we've seen in the donations and the record-breaking fundraising, and I'm and I'm talking about small dollar fundraising, the energy shows that people are very motivated to to elect new leaders, not just to get rid of Donald Trump, but to elect new leaders and to elect people that that are closer to their to their values. Um, and so I think for folks who are feeling like I'm excited about new leadership but maybe I have some reservations or I want, I'm, I'm thinking more into the future. This is the convention to watch and to hear those voices and see what the party uh, looks like and where it's going. And frankly, to know that she helped shape that part. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's an opportunity to, like you said, unify the party, which is gonna be big this year, I feel like. Um, I think it's big every year, but especially in years where we're seeing the Democratic Party, you know, the, the left, farther left side of the party is growing. You see the surge in momentum that a Bernie Sanders has had, um, being the runner-up, two presidential cycles in a row, um, and seeing the influence and who he's inspired. There's a lot of energy there. So it's a chance to bring those people into the tent as well, invite them in. And also, I, I, this is a big opportunity for Joe Biden. He's going to have a national audience to give his pitch, you know, people that haven't heard from Joe Biden yet, um, this is his chance, you know. Donald Trump has, um, you know, the White House press conferences he can do if he chooses to do them, when he chooses to do them. Uh, Joe Biden now has this national stage to, to make his pitch for the country, and that's going to be pivotal, once again, in those battleground states, in Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Florida, because there are people who are on the fence where there are people who may have voted for Donald Trump in 2016 who are swayable and could go Joe Biden's way, or those who just aren't energized and feel like they don't want to vote this year and want to set out the entire process. He's got to inspire them as well. And these speakers have to as well to get them to make that, make that decision. I think the beauty of this convention is going to be the fact that if you are a former Donald Trump voter who just is now in the never Trump category, the Democratic Party has a split has a space for you. If you are have always been, you know, a tried and true yellow dog Democrat, there's a space for you. If you are a moderate, there is a space for you. And I think this DNC, out of all of the ones that I have watched since I was, you know, watching William J. Clinton accept it in 1992 in my in my crib from the bassinet. I truly believe that this is the DMC to make the case that we are the big tent party, that everyone has a space, everyone is valued, and there is a mission for you to accomplish within this party. We yeah. don't believe anybody's disposable in the Democratic Party. And it's interesting you bring that up because John Kasich is going to be speaking, Republican, former Republican Ohio governor. And mm -hmm. presidential candidate, John Kasich, has a primetime speaking spot for the DNC. Uh, I, mean, I believe he spoke uh, Monday, same day as Bernie Sanders. So, you know, it just kind of shows that that's completely opposite end, right, of the spectrum there. So, yeah, it really is a big I do wonder. I think it's, it's going to be tough, but you have to 
in this Big Ten pitch. You mentioned Yellow Dog Democrats, you know, disaffected Trump uh, supporters, things like that. They still, the left has to feel like they're part of that tent, the far left. And that's going to be on Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and the far left wing and the leaders of that, William Castro and all them to, you know, uh, make that pitch. It's going to be really heavy, really, really heavy, really tough because there's a lot of anger this year, a lot of dissatisfaction. Um, but it's interesting, too, you have Kamala Harris here as VP who has to straddle this line. <laughs> she has Republicans painting her as far left progressive radical <laughs> and Democrats say, well, she's not progressive or left she's more moderate it's well i'll make two i'll make two cases here i'll say two things yeah. I, I think we've seen this week that the republican party doesn't know what to do about the vp nominee they don't know what to do their well, message is that she, she did, well right they're doing racist anti-immigrant mm-hmm. uh xenophobic uh, uh birther claims they're uh saying she's too tough on issues of criminal justice, but not tough enough. They don't know where to go with that argument. And 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 it's not new. It, the Trump campaign and, and led by the Republican and the Republican Party that he's led it's, have been agents of chaos. And so they're gonna run a chaos campaign. And but let's set that aside for a minute. When we talk about the DNC convention, a part of what's so important about showcasing the fact that the Democratic Party has a place for everybody is that those down ballot races matter too. Those governors' races, those races for Congress and those races for Senate, those folks who are running in those races represent the nation and represent the different perspectives that come together in the Democratic Party. So I think all of those things together really make the case uh, for why not just as a place for everyone in the party, but that right now we're in a moment in particular in this country where leadership really matters. And so having a giant uh, case there uh, uh, to make the case um, for why Joe Biden can lead this country forward, I think, is is remarkable and speaks to the integrity of the party to invite a a moderate, albeit a a Republican governor, uh, to speak at the DNC. Yeah, huge. All right, guys. Well, that's another episode of Young, Black, and Political in the Books. Thank you, everyone, for joining us on this ride. You can follow us on Instagram at... Young, that's Y-N-G-B-L-K Political, Y-N-G-B-L-K Political on Instagram. Um, Hit us up on SoundCloud and we'll be on uh, Spotify and the Apple Podcast area very, very soon. So uh, for Stephanie, for Chris, for Jordan, I'm Brandon Pope. And uh, stay woke, stay black, keep fighting.